Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1. That's what we're going to look at. Romans 4, verse 1. Now, a couple things that are basic about the book of Romans, but I thought I should mention as we get started. Romans is a book penned by the Apostle Paul. He is writing what is going to turn out to be his greatest argument, his most full presentation of what God has done for sinful human beings. He's taken them from a state of being destitute, that all that they did was sort of like rags, and he declared them righteous. And this process of moving people from one place to the other is what the entirety of the book is about. The question could be put forward, how does one become justified? How is it that you are on the right side with God? How does he say to you, not guilty, enter in, well done? Romans is a description, a full description. In fact, I would even say it goes beyond a description. It's a glorying in. It's a delighting in the way that God has taken sinners and justified them, brought them to himself. So we are now at the beginning of chapter 4. We've already turned the page. Paul has given us all the bad news up front. He's shown us the disease, the problem. And he is now beginning to unfold the chief argument of the entire book. And that is the justification, the way that we're right, is by faith, not by works, not by anything that we can do. That's where we're going to pick up, starting in verse 1 of Romans chapter 4. So I'm going to read down to 16, and verse 16 sort of stops in the middle of a a sentence. You'll see what I mean, Uh, but I'm going to take this as a sort of a part 1 and a part 2 in chapter 4. So just like our fall festival trunk winners, you're going to have to stay tuned for next week. Let's begin into Romans chapter 4. This is the first verse. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then? Was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, 
but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. I'm going to pause there. I want to invite you to pray with me that we would have a closer experience of our confession. Just to remind you a few things that we confess concerning these words. This is the very word of God. It's authoritative. It is without error. It is given to us so that we might know what is required of us to be just with God, to be right with him. This word is not a dead word. It's living. It's active. That our Father intends to dwell here by his Spirit and speak to us through these words. That's the thing we confess. If you have Christian on, if you're wearing the jersey, that's what we confess. But all of us know sometimes the things that we declare, we know to be true, that we confess, our experience can lag behind a little bit. Our experience is a little Monday morning. And so let's ask that we are moved to live in what we confess. Let's pray. God, thank you for speaking. Thank you for giving us good words. And I ask that what you have revealed to us would not be a dead or empty word this morning. You've promised that where your word goes forth, that it will never, ever return void. And so I ask for a good return on our study of Scripture this morning. I pray that as our hearts and our minds are attentive to Scripture, to the arguments that are here, to what's being put forward by Paul, that we would find life in us, that we would experience the joy that comes with having our sins forgiven, that we would see it as a good thing, that it's not those adherents of the law that receive justification, but those who look to you in faith. I ask, God, that whatever would distract us, whatever causes the gap of experience and confession, that you would please cut through those things this morning. Our minds tend to wander. We're full of doubt and cynicism. We've brought with us many sorrows and difficulties. And so we need you, God of all comfort. We need you to comfort us to direct us, to arrest our attention, and help us to learn together. God, I ask your blessing on everyone who's come. What a gift it is, what a a cool thing it is to be together in your presence. I want to be of benefit, so I pray that my words could be helpful, and that all who have gathered would be encouraged, and they would see Jesus more clearly. We pray that in his name. Amen. I've titled the morning, this first part of Romans chapter 4, if I had to give a title to it, I would call it a proper reckoning. A proper reckoning. We're going to get to why that word reckoning, or where I get it from, why it's so important in the whole of the argument of Romans chapter 4. But I first want to set the entire argument that Paul is making in a kind of context. I want to put our minds in a place where Paul has now begun defending He first outlined the problem that humanity has in our fallen nature and sin for two and a half chapters. Then he put forward what he believed was God's solution to this problem. And now, especially as we get here to chapter 4, he is addressing those who would be skeptical. And he is going to make an argument. It's as though he has shifted to defending a particular proposition. He's 
defending a case. He's making an argument as though in a courtroom. And one of the most amazing things about the way that Paul's mind works as he often asks questions. He puts things to the point. He, he thinks through logically. He tears down arguments that could be against it and tries to bolster all in order, bolster his argument, all in order to convince us more fully that this statement is true and trustworthy, that all of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will be justified. So he is in a courtroom of, in, in a sense. And that should be a comfortable place. It should be a place that gains our attention. Because it turns out that courtrooms are a very, very popular place for people to give attention. Have you noticed this? I don't think that it's brand new. I think about when I was a kid. You know, people have always loved courtroom drama. Some of those popular shows on TV were like Law and Order. Matlock. Was that a show? Forever, right? Crom drama dramas have been a thing. There's a reason that Sherlock Holmes captivates the imagination. Everybody wants to know who done it, and then more than that, is there going to be a reckoning for this? We all have a kind of justice instinct in us that wants to know what is true, what is right, to put things in order. And so, crime dramas, I think, have always captured people's imagination, arguments, and logic, and it certainly isn't slowing down. Carrying forward the tradition of Matlock and Law and Order and these kind of shows, we have CSI, and it's 19,000 varieties, CSI, Northwestern Missouri edition, right? It's like some, every single city now has a kind of CSI, and people eat this stuff up. They want to know what happened, and how will it be prosecuted, and can we figure this out? How many of us have listened to podcasts that endlessly go through the details of some court case trying to make an argument? These are all the rage. Lost my, I lost my grandmother a couple of years ago. And when I think back to her, it's an odd thing to say, but I think of her when I'm thinking about courtroom scenes. One funny little thing about my sweet grandmother is that she became, especially in her older years, I'm not going to use the word addicted, it sounds rude, but maybe you could think it. And uh, my grandmother loved crime dramas. The more crazy, the better. The more insane, the more like scary and crazy, she would sit and for hours just think through, oh, who did this? Who did this? She wanted to know the arguments. She loved the lawyers. She loved the scene. She loved the prosecution. The whole deal, that was her jam. She spent many of her late years thinking through this kind of thing. So perhaps we will have a keen interest in, perhaps if we put it in this vain. If we think to ourselves that Paul is placing himself as a lawyer in some sense, he is an attorney, an advocate for a position, and he wants to convince all of those who are there listening in, a jury of those who would be ready to receive the gospel, that his case for what God is like and how he reckons is the correct one. Chief in his mind are those amongst the jury who believe that God has granted righteousness according to what people have done. Chief in his mind are those among the jury who would have been proper and good religious folk. Those who said, no, 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 we know how God is. We have our people lined up. We already have our argument. They need to be convinced in a secondary kind of way of this, what they believe is sort of a new thinking. 
And here's the way that Paul's going to get at their argument. Here's how he's going to dismantle the case in front of him and put forward his own. He's going to try to show them that justification by faith is not a brand new idea. You see, we have a suspicion innately, I think, of, of new ideas. This is not a new idea. This new idea in the other people's minds, what Paul's going to argue is actually has been the oldest idea that has ever been put forward in religion. And this idea of justification by faith, not only is it not a new idea, it's God's idea and always has been. And so what he's going to do, if we got the courtroom scene set up, is he's going to call two key witnesses. And that's how we're going to break up this part of Romans chapter 4. We're going to think about it in terms of two key witnesses. There are two key witnesses in his case for how God counts righteousness. First is Abraham and the second is David. Now, these should be obvious because if you were making a Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament, Abraham and David are on it, right? And you know that some Sunday school class somewhere has made an actual Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament. So I don't know who else gets on there. We actually spent time in a pastor's meeting this week trying to figure out who's on it. I cannot believe I, I did that, but I did that. So Abraham and David are for sure, right? They're front and center. And imagine you're the kind of person who is trying to think through and trying to receive this, what to you feels like a new idea. Paul says, well, let me call a few witnesses. And I want to start by thinking about Abraham. And I'm going to use Abraham as as a sort of avatar, an idea, of course, but it applies to David as well. One of the reasons that Paul calls Abraham is because he is, as he mentioned in verse 1, a forefather of the faith. Abraham is the person that you wanted to be in line with, to be a child of Abraham, to have father Abraham. Think about the song the moment I say it. Is it in there? It's around there somewhere. You wanted father Abraham. That's just the way that it worked. And so, Paul says, I'm going to bring forward Abraham, one of your own. So, you can imagine two sides of a court case. On one side, this argument of the Jewish people thought, well, no, no, we're going to argue against you, and our chief witness, our star witness is Abraham. We have Abraham. Who do you have? And Paul says, well, actually, I have Abraham. And he calls him out first. You see the scene, like the doors open and the guy at the front, I don't know how this all works, I've only seen it on TV, he says something like, and now the witness, and then the doors open in the back, and you just see like a long beard and the robe come around the corner, and everyone in the room gasps like, it's Abraham, he did it, he called Abraham. So Abraham would have been important for a number of reasons. One, he's on the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament. Two, he would have been a chief, according to the Jewish position, a chief arguer on their side of the case. So he's going to be flipped on his head. Another reason is because he was just trusted and trustworthy. You see, all of us take cues from certain trustworthy characters. In this case, he was set up as a religious leader, a forefather by God himself. But we all have this a little bit. Very few of us have the time or the energy, maybe some of us would say, nor the ability to come to all of our own conclusions about everything. So we navigate the world based on signals. And many times it's not just signals, but signal bearers. What does that person think? And if they think this, then I'll probably think this too. It's why advertising works. Why in the world 
do you care if Michael Jordan is on your underwear commercial? Why in the world do athletes make more money off the field than they do on it talking to you about products? Because all of us operate in this way. Once we've been convinced that someone is trustworthy, we oftentimes are more likely to align, align our lives with them. So Abraham is a perfect, like Paul is a marketing genius. He's a legal genius, a marketing genius, a gasp, oh no, I can't believe he did this genius. And Abraham comes walking down into the courtroom. And what Paul wants to consider and think about is how was it that Abraham, maybe their question was, I want to be in the line of Abraham, but Paul wants to, says, rather than, wants to say, rather than arguing about which side of Abraham we're on, let's talk about Abraham himself and figure out how he got on the right side. And the thing that's in the forefront is the justification of Abraham, his righteousness. These words are often used interchangeably through Paul's arguments. We could probably just say what they mean here for a moment or two. The idea of justification is to be declared righteous. For it's a legal declaration. It's, it's more than that. It's familial. We know that in the gospel, God calls us as family. It means we belong to a, a group of people. It means that we relate to him eternally in a certain way. There's all kinds of benefits. So it's not only legal, but it definitely helps. And it's not less than a legal declaration. It is a statement that God makes over all of the universe, calling out not guilty or guilty if you are not justified. So justification is a legal declaration, at minimum, a legal declaration that you are righteous in God's sight, that you've made it. And the word that Paul's going to use when describing these kind of arguments or these things that that God puts forward, he's going to use the word counted. In fact, he uses it seven times just in the verses that we read. Seven times. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. So the one who works but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted. There it is again. And we should be paying careful attention to this because the argument that Paul's going to try to make is, how was Abraham counted, and what I think a good word for this counted is, I think it's a decent translation, your version might have something different, there's a little bit more of a, a traditional word for this that I think is good, I always thought of it as a southern word when I was a kid, but reckoned, to count up, to consider something so. It has both a math basis, which is why I think count makes sense, but also it has a sort of settled conviction basis. When I was a kid, I imagined one day meeting someone who would say something like, I reckon. I don't know if you knew people like that or if that was common for you, but I judged all of you when I was a kid. I grew up and I thought everyone south of Kentucky just says reckon all the time. I reckon we're fixed to get hitched. That's what I thought everybody sounded like. And Paul's case is essentially this. What was God doing in his counting? What was he counting? What was he reckoning when it came to Abraham? How did Abraham get off scot-free? How did Abraham get on the right side with God? How did Abraham become the forefather of all who are just and right with God? The argument that he makes here is simple. 
he goes back to, this is instructive for us, he goes back to another place that would have been trustworthy. It would have been the place that those who were listening in, especially Jewish people, would have trusted the Scriptures. So in verse 3 of Romans chapter 4, he says, what does the Scripture say? I also just want to make note again that Paul is arguing, seeing, and glorying in the gospel from the Old Testament only. Now, I'm so happy we have the New Testament. The fulfillment that we have in Christ is amazing. I'm not saying ignore New Testament. Of course, don't. It's a fulfillment kind of thing. But there is much to say concerning forgiveness of sins, concerning the character and nature of God, and given to us in hope through the Old Testament. So when he says, what does the Scripture say? He's thinking about Old Testament passages, and he pulls from a place in Genesis. He retells Abraham's story in light of justification by faith. What he quotes here is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And there in Genesis 15, 6, Paul says this idea of justification by faith is old. In fact, it's not only old, it's the way that God has always functioned, it's the way that he works. What was gained by Abraham, he's already asked, well, this is what was gained and gained and how. Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted to him He counted it to him as righteousness. There's that word again. He counted it. God reckoned it to him as righteousness. So Paul is now going back in his court case and thinking about one previous, and he says, Abraham came before God, and he had something to offer. And there God listened to the case. He saw everything in order, and then there was one thing that made him slam the gavel down and say, not guilty, yes, righteous. And what was it? It was Abraham's faith. The question is, how do we know that Abraham was right with God? If we want to be on Abraham's side, how do we know that he was right with God? And he was. No one could argue that Abraham didn't have righteousness. If they did, the whole thing falls apart. So there are no people of God if Abraham wasn't a man of God, wasn't called by him. So how did Abraham get in? How did Abraham find the right side of God's righteousness? Well, Paul argues and says... It was by faith. So if you want to be someone who has Father Abraham, you need to follow in his footsteps, not by obeying the law perfectly as though he had, but instead by sharing the faith that he had. Now someone might say, well, sure, Paul, that might be there in Genesis 15, but we also know that Abraham obeyed when God commanded things, and it could be that he was already righteous and his faith just sort of added to it. And this is when Paul brings up the next logical question, and he says, now here's the thing about Abraham. We need to realize that Genesis 15, now you've got to follow me closely. These are intense arguments here. You've got to follow me really, really closely. This is what Paul's going to say. He's going to say, here's how this works. Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17, because 15 in Numbers comes before 17. Are we clear with that? That's the argument that he's making. This is the forceful statement that he's saying in front. In Genesis 15, God declares Abraham righteous, and that is years, 14 years prior to any command given to Abraham to circumcise himself or his children, which the Jewish people said would have been the sign of his obedience, his works in following. This is years and years and years prior to the command in Genesis 17 to be circumcised. So, 
Abraham, the trustworthy one, Abraham, our forefather, he says in verse 1, was declared righteous, counted, reckoned righteous by God years and years and years before there was ever the command to keep this work, this circumcision work that you trust in so much. I'm going to read one more place where Paul makes the same argument. If you want Romans, but maybe squished down a little bit and a little bit more pointed on this issue of faith and works, you could read Galatians. This is Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 5. Galatians 3, 5 to 9, Paul's going to argue the similar thing. This is how he pulls Abraham in and shows how he was counted or reckoned righteous. He says this, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. I love this phrase. Look what Paul says about the Old Testament, about the entire encounter of God with Abraham. He says he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul rests the entire force of his argument on the most trustworthy, the most central, the most key figure of righteousness and belonging to the people of God. He calls Abraham the key witness and turns the argument on its head. What he wants them to see so desperately is not that Jesus came and preached some other different gospel. Many people were accusing Paul of what could be called in a technical term to being an antinomian. Antinomian, nomian is a root, comes with a root word for the idea of the law. And people said, well, Paul, you're just crazy. You, you are denying the law. You want people to be reckless. You think that what people do, what they do doesn't matter at all. And what Paul wants to show them is, no, you've misunderstood from the beginning. I am not anti-law at all. I am believing the law of God, the scripture of God, when I say that those who would be justified must be by faith. We fulfill the law. We uphold it. We understand it better and more rightly when we see Abraham in this light. He says, this is not something new with Jesus. It's certainly not something new with me. It's not something new with these Christians who you are so suspicious of. This has been God's gospel from the beginning. God is going to bless the world through Abraham. And the way that you get to be in on this blessing through Abraham is to follow along with his faith. So he exhausts Abraham. Abraham's done. I don't know what they say at this point. Are there any further questions? Or <laughs> I don't know. Some bailiff does something. He steps down from the stand and says, Are there any further witnesses? Any other witnesses that you could bring to show us this, this novel interpretation of the Bible, Paul? And he says, Yes, actually, I have another. And he calls forth David. He brings up this phrase this in David in verse 6 of Romans chapter 4. He says, just as David, and now he's going to show how David lines up with Abraham. And so the doors open in the back, and David comes down, harp on his back, sheep under his arm, or whatever he, whatever he is in your imagination. And he takes the stand. 
And here, Paul might go through David's life just a little bit. And everybody's in hushed tones, and they're very honored to be in the presence of King David. If there was one person in the history of of Israel, one person that really showed that God was for his people, one person who had reign and status, one person who not only ruled and reigned as a person after God's own heart, but then the promise came that there would be a king in his line forever. The hopes of Israel in many ways were on David. So David takes the stand and everyone is ready to listen. And perhaps Paul says, now David, let's, uh, let's rehearse your life a little bit. Let's just think about how did you become such a a vaunted figure in the history of Israel? How is it that you are so trustworthy? What is it that makes you such a wonderful example of the kind of people we want to be? How is it, David, that you garnered God's attention and got this promise that there would be someone in your line forever? What's your secret? And now all the The questioning, of course, all the line of thinking is going to refute the idea that David did something. You know, maybe the person listening would have said, well, well, David is a man of perfection. That's why. David's a man of integrity, never told a lie. David's a man who was faithful through and through, up and down. But instead, the line of questioning comes, David, tell me exactly what happened in your marriage. David, tell me exactly violence committed against Uriah. David, tell me exactly the way that you lied about it. David, tell me exactly the times that you doubted or sinned. More than that, David, tell me exactly how it was that this came to light. And David's story would be put forward in the courtroom, and everyone would listen awkwardly with just a little bit of sadness about how even the heroes of the faith, this is Mount Rushmore, this whole life's being put out there, and someone might say, well, Paul, this is kind of a low blow, like, why bring up David? Everybody knows about that. It was a sad deal. Paul says, no, 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 I'm not doing this to be morbid. I'm not doing this to to drag someone through the mud. I'm doing this to show you that there is a certain way that God interacts with people. There's a certain way that we have hope. There's a certain way that we find happiness and justification. There's a certain way that God's going to reckon someone righteous, and it's not through the perfection of their life. And so, in Romans chapter 4, and verse 6, he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing. And what he's going to say is, is that David argued the same gospel that I'm arguing. Abraham received the gospel that I'm arguing for, but David actually made the argument for me. It says, David speaks of the blessing. The word blessing here in verse 6 is happiness, definitive happiness, joy, the kind of free joy that you experience when all the pressures of the world and all of the burdens of life are not weighing you down. True blessing. That's the idea. It's full blessing. David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God, there's that word again, counts righteousness. How? 
How does he count righteousness apart from works? And the way that we know he has to count righteousness apart from works is because David, in the worst of his moments, experienced forgiveness from God, not because of what he had done well, but he received forgiveness because of what he had done poorly. And then this quotation in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 7, he's pulling directly from Psalm 32. So when he says, blessed, again, happy, joyful are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed, happy, joyful, free is the man against whom the Lord will not count, that word again, count, reckon his sin. I want to read a more full description of the way that David described this righteousness how he was declared or reckoned not guilty despite being a sinner. I'm going to read directly from Psalm 32, starting in verse 1. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression... I can't say that word for a second. Transgression. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. These words, Selah, in a psalm indicate a moment of reflection. They're meant to slow you down. He slows down in two spots. One, he slows down considering the reality of his life and the effect of his own works on his own soul. He says, my bones were wasting away. I was groaning all day long. God's hand was heavy upon me. His wrath was heavy upon me. And his strength was dried up. And he pauses and he waits on that. He feels the burden of it. And then he declares the way that he was counted righteous. The way that he was counted righteous is he simply admitted, he acknowledged, he gave over his sin to God. And it was then and there that not because of his works, but actually in spite of them, that God counted no sin. He covered it. He forgave it. And what Paul is going to argue is that David's gospel here, his good news here, is that it is not those who live perfectly, not those who earn the forgiveness of God. It's not because of their works, but actually in spite of them, that if they would just acknowledge that they can't work to get it, that they might be on the path to righteousness. God loves to reckon people forgiven. God loves to not count sin against those who confess. God loves to give righteousness, to count it, to impute it to those who admit that they are not righteous on their own. What Paul wants all of those who would listen to this gospel to see is this idea of us being an heir, he's going to end the verses at least that we read about, those who want this promise, 
says in verse 16, there is a promise. This idea of righteousness, really 13 through 16, three times, the promise of righteousness by faith, the promise of forgiveness. Those who want to be heirs, who want the blessing that David received, it is a natural and a wonderful thing. All of us want the blessed life. All of us want to feel the freedom that comes with not having the heavy hand of God upon us for our sin. It is a normal and a natural thing to want this. What Paul's arguing is that the longer we hold on to our works, the longer we place people under the heavy burden, or the heavy yoke of believing that somehow Abraham or David got right with God because of the way that they earned it, the way that they were striving, that the longer that we insist on that, the longer we keep blessedness from people. We're robbing people of joy if we insist on righteousness in this way. So the argument that Paul ultimately makes after listening to David, and I can imagine David recounting his life, recounting his story, quoting again from Psalm 32 and saying, let me tell you the the blessing that I received, not because of anything that I did. In fact, I didn't receive this blessing until I confessed what I had done in my sin. I can imagine him reliving the joy again. I brought up my grandmother a moment ago. I'll mention my grandfather in the same marriage of 53 years now. I still remember as a, as a little kid being impacted by listening to my grandfather describe coming to know Jesus at age 43. And every single time that he would mention it, every time he would talk about confessing his sins and, and finding hope in facing death, he couldn't get through the sentences. He would get through about the second sentence and in the middle of it, I would just see tears start to stream down. His voice would crack a little bit. Now, he was an emotional guy. It was not totally out of the ordinary, but it was out of the ordinary in the sense that he told the story hundreds of times. I was with him all the time when he described what it was like to, be, to know that he was forgiven of his sins. And I remember as a child thinking to myself, this is fascinating. He has blessed joy, happiness again and again and again and describing the way this occurs. And I think what I saw in my grandfather in those moments when he tells someone the story again is perhaps what David is describing. He says, no, let me tell you, blessed is the person, happy is the person whose sins are forgiven. Happy is the person against whom the Lord will not count sin. Happy, blessed. And maybe at the end of his testimony, David shares this. He describes again with joy. He can feel it bubbling up in him again. And he's released from the stand and the bailiff does his thing. He walks down. And Paul pauses for a moment. At the end of his argument, he says, I am making a case for justification by faith, not by works, not by the quality of someone's life, but by the condition that they confess their sins, God reckons people righteous. And he's argued this not by some newfangled idea, but by the very people that were most trusted, the Mount Rushmore 
of faith. So the invitation that he gave to all who would be listening and those of us who are now here in this little argument is to be an heir of Abraham and to follow in his faith and to find that faith by being an heir of David who finally confessed, who finally gave up the striving, gave up the pretending and offered themselves wholly to God who desires to bless and to not count our sin. So my invitation would be similar. Let's follow in the faith of Abraham. Let's confess sins like David and trust that we'll find joy. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you would give us the kind of joy that David found, that blessedness, that happiness, that deep, deep joy. God, I ask that whatever heavy hand remains on us, remains on those in this room who have hidden, whatever striving, whatever grasping onto our own righteousness remains, help us to give these things up. I pray that we would turn to you, look to you, open our hands, confess you in faith, and that you would give us deep and abiding joy in Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen.